Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Linda Bilmes, the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Senior Lecturer in Public Policy here at the Kennedy School. Professor Bilmes has held senior positions in the U.S. government, including Assistant Secretary and CFO of the U.S. Department of Commerce, and has written extensively on U.S. budgeting. Linda, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Matt. The topic du jour in the D.C. Beltway these days is, of course, the sequester. Um, Can you give us a brief overview of what the sequester is and how it came to be? Well, what the sequester is is is, is, uh, across-the-board budget cuts to (coughs) discretionary spending, which means all of the spending that's been – that gets appropriated every year, including defense spending and domestic programs. It does not include the spending which is appropriated through long-term formulae, which includes Social Security and Medicare. And the way that this came into being is that in July uh, 2011, Congress was in a previous budget fiasco regarding whether or not to raise the debt ceiling. And they decided to set up a super committee. And the super committee was supposed to come to agreement on some set of revenue and and spending uh, cuts and increases. And due to the fact that they were not able to uh, come to an agreement, they set up a penalty, which was considered to be so onerous that it would never come into being that would incentivize them to reach an agreement. And the penalty was that we would make across-the-board cuts in defense and domestic spending. So... The upshot is that because they could not reach agreement, we are now in the sequestration uh, cutting phase. So to give our listeners some perspective on the U.S. budget, uh, there is non-discretionary spending, as you said, Medicare, Social Security, uh, uh, interest payments on the debt, um, and there's discretionary spending, which includes the military and uh, everything, basically everything else. Um, Can you give us an idea of how, how much of the total federal budget that discretionary side is? Um, The word discretionary is kind of misleading because it suggests that we could actually decide to get rid of all of it, which is really not true because it includes all military spending. But the discretionary spending is about a third of the budget. About two-thirds of the budget are automatic, which means that they are set by formulae. So, for example, if you turn a certain age, you are eligible for Uh, Social Security benefits. If you uh, meet certain income criteria, you are eligible for a certain type of criteria. And about two-thirds of the budget is set that way. The um, remaining third is the subject of the annual appropriations process in which you have each individual program and each agency trying to figure out how much money is going to need, and it goes through a very protracted process through congressional committees every year. um, to be uh, uh, to be decided, and that's the part that is being cut now. So that in the sequester. So that sequester cut. Uh, it seems like a pretty big number uh, in in its totality. It's spread over ten years. Uh, what kind of percentage of the total federal budget is it? Do you? Well, I think the issue is not the percentage or even the size of the cut. It is a question of how you make cuts. And anyone who is thinking about how to cut back on their budget, for example, any student who's out there knows that there are some things they could cut, for example, how many beers they drink, which probably wouldn't have that much of an effect. 
On the other hand, if they cut by 10% how much tuition they were paying to Harvard, uh, actually they wouldn't be able to go to school anymore. So that would probably be a less wise cut from the perspective of their long-term interests. And what's happened in the government is that they're treating everything the same. So it's an exceedingly dumb way to go about cutting because it's draconian and it's arbitrary and it doesn't prioritize. So we're treating travel conferences the same way we're treating air traffic controllers, cutting everything. And the issue is not whether you could cut 10% out of the discretionary spending. The issue is whether cutting it across the board with a machete is the appropriate way to do it. So I think uh, conservatives might argue that the federal government has uh, been having a lot of beers, and to push your analogy to its limits. Um, do you think that there are cuts out there that could be made to perhaps equal the, the amount that's been cut now that would be sensible or at least more sensible than across-the-board cuts? Sure, sure. There is a great deal of inefficiency, and you don't have to be conservative to be worried about the uh, national debt and to be worried about the way that we spend money. I mean, just to give you an example, two weeks ago I was trying to change my plane ticket uh, to California. It was a government-purchased ticket through a government-mandated travel agency. And the ticket I wanted to change to was $500 cheaper than the one that I had. But the government travel agency refused to let me change it because it required a $25 change fee, which was not proved. And I asked if I could pay the change fee myself. And they said, no, if I did that, then they wouldn't pay for the ticket at all. So anyone who has any encounters with the government along these lines is ex exasperated by the fact that they see inefficiencies and they see waste. And the problem is that this sequester will not get at any of this waste. And the reason for that is that, unfortunately, we don't have the kind of accounting and budgeting systems in the government that would enable us to see where we spend a lot on overheads and indirect spending. So for example, if you were trying to figure out places in a private organization, in a private company, how to reduce spending, you would look at all the different steps in the process. You would look at your distribution network and your supplier relationships and your transportation costs and the cost of purchasing and processing and back um, payroll processing and all those different activities that go on and lay out the steps and lay out the costs and see whether there was a way to streamline some of these processes to do them more efficiently, to do them more cheaply. And you would do that before you would cut the products at the end of the line. You wouldn't just say, well, let's just kind of cut um, half of the uh, Ben and Jerry's flavors out. You would say, let's look at all of the things that go into it and see where we can cut before we would take out a flavor. And what the government has unfortunately failed to do for years and years and years, and it's really catching up with it, is it's failed to put in place a basic what's called a cost accounting framework, which is the way any organization larger than a corner grocery store analyzes its cost structure. And so it doesn't have the ability to really understand the costs of different activities. So just to make sure this is very clear, uh, there are a couple of ways in which this lack of a accounting and, and cost and budget framework makes it impossible for the government to really see where money is spent. 
This is particularly true um, in the Pentagon, where, according to Secretary, former Secretary Gates, about 30 percent of the costs go into overhead. So what are all of those costs? Those are costs of purchasing and costs of evaluating uh, and costs of post-evaluating and the cost of doing the contracting and evaluating contracts and analyzing whether or not uh, a new functionality is needed to a piece of technology. Those are all those indirect costs. Uh, those are all the costs of processing claims in the TRICARE system or processing claims in the retirement system. All those kind of back office things and indirect costs are not um, able to be seen. And the second area where it's very, very difficult is things that are where services are provided really across a lot of different agencies. For example, in the veterans field where, where I've done uh, extensive amount of work, there are dozens of programs that are geared to trying to provide employment for veterans, training for veterans. We have programs throughout government. Most of those are uh, uh, diffused across many different um, programs and agencies within the departments. They typically go through the state and local levels. And really understanding how much money actually gets to the veterans and the things that actually work, as opposed to things that are spread across uh, administrative costs, is very challenging with um, our current budget framework. So uh, the sequester happened to have hit within a week of a, uh, a report uh, that came out about the Iraq war. So money spent on uh, reconstruction in Iraq, the report said something uh, over $60 billion uh, was wasted um, in, in that reconstruction effort. Um, with things like that happening without, uh, you know, kind of public knowledge until well after the fact, uh, is it possible to really do an appropriate accounting as we go along? Well, I think that the you raise an important point, which is a third point, um, which is a prioritization um, among among um, what we spend. And there's no question in my mind that, as as you know, I've written extensively on the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and the amount of spending, for example, on Iraq. Uh, and Afghanistan reconstruction. We've spent about $87 billion on Afghanistan reconstruction, of which at least half of it is, um, to use the military phrase, uh, is money on which we've lost visibility. Um, and <laughs> I suspect that the vast majority of Americans, Democrats and Republicans, would say that that was a poor use of funding compared with a whole basket of um, domestic programs and military programs um, that would have uh, been of better use. Now that brings um, uh, into discussion a another issue, which is how money is spent and how the congressional process for, for allocating money is set up. And one of the things that is most troubling and most disturbing um, about our budget system is the fact that the, the whole system has broken down to the point that we have spent trillions of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan using the so-called emergency supplemental mechanism for funding. So what that means is that every year Congress is given a certain amount of money, which is what it can spend. And the only way it can spend more than that is if it does certain tricks. And the biggest trick is to enact something using the emergency supplemental mechanism. Now that mechanism is supposed to be for 
genuine emergencies like Hurricane Sandy, in which the priority is to get the money out fast. So you suspend the normal checks and balances that would enable people to really look very, very carefully at the money and how it was spent and how it was accounted for, because you really want to get the money out quickly. Now, we have funded the entire Iraq and Afghanistan wars, trillions of dollars, using this budget-busting emergency supplemental trick, which means that those trillions of dollars have not been subject to the normal scrutiny. Uh, and it's unsurprising that using a process that was completely ill-suited for spending this kind of money, that we have rampant profiteering, corruption, and waste. The long-term debt situation is one of the uh, uh, things that Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on. If uh, sequester isn't the way to do it, is there a better alternative that can you know, accomplish the goal? Um, yes, absolutely. And let me start by saying the sequester will not help us achieve long-term debt reduction. Uh, first of all, because we're cutting arbitrarily, but even more importantly, because we're cutting in the one-third of the budget, which is discretionary, when the things that are contributing to our long-term debt are the entitlements and the things that are not affected by the sequester. So we're not even making cuts in the things that are driving the long-term debt. Now, um, the, the overwhelming majority of Americans in both parties, according to the Pew survey and the Gallup survey and every other survey that I've seen, um, agree on some uh, fundamentals, which are that there should be uh, more revenues coming in from wealthier people, and that includes not just taxes paid, but tax expenditures, in other words, tax deductions granted, um, and that there um, need to be a slowing of growth of some of these long-term drivers to gradually bring the debt down. At the same time, we should be spending money on things that are investments in future jobs and competitiveness, which include research and development, which incidentally were cut in the sequester, and education, and infrastructure, where we have the opportunity now to borrow at the lowest rates in history. Uh, to rebuild some of the crumbling infrastructure in this country. So it has to be that combination of things. But I think that there are a few common sense reforms that we could take that would help us to get a much better grip on the budget so we stop lurching from crisis to crisis and get ourselves into a better position to be able to tackle the long-term problems. I've suggested a number of um, reforms, but three of them that I am particularly in favor of are, uh, first of all, to move from the budgeting system we have now, which is supposed to be annual, to a biannual, uh, every two-year budgeting. Because right now, you have tens of thousands of people in government spending an enormous amount of time and bandwidth uh, trying to justify budgets every year that Congress doesn't enact, trying to determine performance results, which are ignored. And the upshot of this is that the, they can't really focus on getting better value for the money that we do spend, 
we end up having short-term contracts with subcontractors. We end up lacking continuity in programs. And the experience of some agencies, like the Department of Veterans Affairs and many states, has been that if you do it over a two-year cycle instead of a one-year cycle, you avoid some of the problems of everybody spending a disproportionate amount of the money in the last two weeks of the year on lower quality stuff, which is endemic right now in the government. So that would be sort of a, a quick, easy way to start. Um, the second is to improve our budgeting frameworks, as I discussed before, to introduce um, cost accounting frameworks, activity-based costing, and capital budgeting, which would give us much greater transparency and control over how our long-term um, budgets for, for weaponry and infrastructure projects are carried out. And again, this is done pretty well by most state and city governments, which means that we have quite a lot of civil servants around the country who actually know how to do this. It's not rocket science. This is not like Middle East peace. This is pretty straightforward stuff that the federal government could get much better at. Mm -hmm. And the third is a overhaul of the congressional appropriations budget process, which is harder, of course. Um, but that process has not been has not had a major reform in more than 40 years. And right now, you have dozens of committees and subcommittees fighting over turf and jurisdiction. And you don't have anyone who can really look at the long-term entitlement spending in the same package as the uh, short-term discretionary spending, uh, the annual discretionary spending. So you have a, a sort of complete lack of transparency over the, the overall budget, even though people are looking very, very deeply into their own little stovepipes. Given those those uh, uh, turf battles, is it even feasible to expect Congress to, uh, you know, if, especially the House to, you know, overhaul their budget budgeting system? The, you know, you um, you look at some of these changes and uh, want to throw up your hands because they seem so intractable. On the other hand, I think the experience of the last few years is that. We are lurching from one crisis to the next, to the next, to the next. And we're already, in the next few months, looking at the next crisis with extending the government to the end of the year, and then the raising of the debt ceiling again, and then the next one. And I think the public is just becoming so frustrated, exacerbated, disillusioned, and angry at this uh, continual kind of um, fiasco of, of, of uh, you know, turning the budget process into a circus, that I actually think that if some members of Congress decided to seriously undertake budget reform, they would, if it could be explained well, I think it, it might resonate rather powerfully with people who are getting fed up. Well, Linda Bilmis, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.